0: Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning just with those words, on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand and so we confess our need for you to come and help us remember and believe and live according to that truth that there's no other way to be reconciled to you there's no other way to be declared righteous in your sight there's no other way to be made holy and to be sanctified but through Christ through his life through his death through his Resurrection, Help us be believing, not unbelieving. And if any are here this morning who are unbelieving, Lord, lift the veil, we pray, of unbelief. Help us to see and put our trust in, our faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. And that's our prayer for your glory, for our certain good, in Christ's name, amen. Well if any of you have ever tried to grow fruit trees you'll know there's just seasons that come where as soon as that fruit starts to come to fruition it's malformed and defective just something's wrong and hopefully what you did not do is run to the store and buy about three bushels of fresh fruit go back to your trees and just duct tape them on or there's other times you just walk out and there's just trees that do not bear. Just nothing comes from them. And hopefully what we would never do is run to an arts and crafts store, buy about 100 plastic pieces of fruit and go and superglue them to the tree branches. I mean, we hear that and we go, yes, that would be ridiculous. That that's not how you grow fruit because when fruit trees produce bad fruit, or no fruit, we usually realize that's not a fruit problem. That's a tree problem. That the real issue is not external to the tree, but internal to the tree. That the solution is not quick and easy, but long and slow. That the solution isn't superficial, but organic. That something has to change in the life of this living organism. And I think something similar can be said about each of us when our lives produce bad fruit or when our lives produce no fruit that just working harder to superficially attach fake fruit won't change anything. Or to superficially attach just fresh fruit from the grocery store won't help either because in about four days you're just gonna have a bunch more rotten fruit on the tree. That somehow we need the organic structure of our souls to be changed. Whether that means number one through the grace of regeneration where we need a whole new tree. That we need a actual tree from briar. Or number two through the grace of sanctification that we need God in his grace to bring greater maturity through his spirit and his word sanctifying us all the more. Either way, the organic change does not come about through our external superficial works. Whatever change is needed is not going to come about through more law or self-righteous effort but through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. That that's how God produces fruit in us. Which brings us to our main point for this morning. The powerful, life-giving, and life-transforming answer to the countless forms of unrighteousness in our lives and the countless forms of self-righteousness in our lives is a sound, growing faith in the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul left Titus on Crete to make that point abundantly clear, to drive it home. Paul left Titus in Crete to appoint elders and leaders over the churches there who would make that point abundantly clear, who would also drive it home Because the Cretans were an unrighteous people. Look at what it says in verse 12. According to a prophet of their own, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul doesn't respond by saying, you know, that's not very nice. They're better than that. What does he say? This testimony is true. In other words, what these many false teachers were even seeing and describing in front of them was the right description of the problem. Which is why when we look at ourselves in the mirror, when we're honest even as a church, we don't come to the conclusion, you know what, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. No, they lived in the flesh like wild animals. They loved to feed on the flesh. Passions of the flesh, that's what ruled and govern them, they were lawless. And so Paul recognizes that they need help. There's no denying that. But the question is of what kind of help? In the same way for us, we need help. There's Cretan in all of us, right? If we're honest. It's there. Though we're no longer ruled by, as Christians, the flesh, the sinful flesh remains. We think things and feel things and do things that are of the flesh. We fail to do things that are of the Spirit, and so we need help. But the key question is, of what kind? Of what kind of help do we need? The world is full of wrong answers to this question, and the wrong answers I find often fall into one of two ditches. The law ditch or the lawlessness ditch? The religion ditch or the irreligion ditch? The moralism ditch or the liberalism ditch? Fix sin on our own or just ignore sin? Appease God by our works or just avoid God? Achieve self-righteousness or deny the very existence of righteousness? Those are the two ditches, which brings us to this first point for this morning, the two ditches that the gospel is intending for us to avoid and even redeem us out of. That on the one hand, this law ditch, self-righteousness, religion, moralism, fix sin on my own. And on the other side, irreligion, liberalism, avoid God, deny even that God is holy or that there is unrighteousness. And from Genesis 3, through the whole story of the Scripture, we see people trying to do something with God and with their sinfulness. And these are usually the two ditches that we fall into. Trying to deal with God and the conscience, trying to be reconciled to Him, trying to change. So the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... Their eyes are opened, and they experience shame, guilt. Okay, something is wrong. And what do they instinctively do? Go find fig leaves, sew them together, and cover themselves. There's the religion ditch, the moralism ditch, the self-righteous works ditch. We're going to do something to cover our own sin. But then it doesn't work. They hear God drawing near, and now what do they do? Well, they run, they hide, they dive behind a tree. Now they're going to avoid God. They're going to jump from one ditch to the other. And so a question I think worth beginning with for ourselves this morning is just what's your form of fig leaf? What's your way of covering up to be pleasing to God? What are the things that really, when you're trying to deal with your own sin, your style of bringing works to God that he would love you, receive you, be reconciled to you? Or on the other side, what's your way of running? What's your form of avoiding God, minimizing sin, denying unrighteousness? Because in an act of incredible grace in Genesis three, God is going to provide a path between those ditches, which isn't a combination of the two. It's just a whole nother way of redemption. A whole nother way of being reconciled back to God. He's going to strip their fig leaves and he's going to cover them with garments of skin from an animal that he's going to kill. And so blood's going to be shed, just not theirs. A covering's going to be given to them, but a covering that he's going to supply through sacrifice. And so the rest of Scripture from Genesis 3 on is also going to tell the story of God, in Paul's words, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God made him, meaning Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so here we see not religion, not irreligion, but Christ, not moralism, not liberalism, but Christ, not self-righteousness, not unrighteousness, but Christ. All along the way, God was providing a payment for sin and a means of righteousness, just one that is apart from our own, apart from our own making. And then the rest of Scripture is also going to tell the story of the human response to that. Now that God does supply a means of righteousness, what do we do with that? And we see nations and people who are just going to keep saying in their hearts, There is no God, Psalm 53. There is no judgment. There is no accountability or authority over me. There is no fear of God. In their eyes, no objective meaning of wickedness. Meaning, wickedness is just this relative thing, it depends on the culture or the time, the ditch of lawless irreligion. When there are also going to be those who are going to arise, who, in God's words, draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. There's going to be another group that's going to arise who they're going to come near to God, but just with lip service, just going through the motions, because their hearts have not been changed. And these are the two ditches that we must beware of, because as they existed through the whole storyline of the Bible, They've existed through the whole storyline of human history since. It's hard to walk, to use Paul's language, in step with the truth of the gospel, Galatians 6.14. Or literally to walk straight forward in the gospel with the promises of God. And these were the ditches that were all over Crete in the days of Paul, all over Crete in the days of Titus. False teachers were teaching that the answer to lawlessness was the law. This was the party of circumcision that we just read about. While others were probably suggesting that the answer to lawlessness is no law. Or perhaps the answer to legalism is just no law. And so people in one ditch were sort of shouting over to the people in the other ditch, leave that wrong ditch and come to us. And God's answer through Paul to that dilemma is neither. The powerful, life-giving, life-transforming answer to the countless forms of unrighteousness in our lives and the countless forms of self-righteousness in our lives is a sound, growing faith in the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what they were being offered there in Crete was more law as a response to the abounding unrighteousness that was there. They were being offered what we'll call this morning the anti-gospel, which brings us to our second point. The anti-gospel and its destructive power because, as we'll see in Scripture, there's just nothing more anti-gospel than self-righteousness. Nothing more against the grain of what God is doing in Christ than apart from Christ trying to trawl near to God with my own righteous works. Paul warned Titus in verse 10 For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So there are many voices arising in Crete saying that the answer to this human sin and misery was imposing religious rules, bits of mosaic law. This was the circumcision party. So they offered a system of relating to God and by implication relating to others that minimized the precious and vital place of Jesus Christ as the savior. We don't just need sort of a boost. We need overhaul, new life, something completely changed about our hearts. And so this party was teaching that we could draw near to God in some way on the basis of our works, probably minimizing also and ignoring the need for heart transformation, that just a superficial change would never be enough. And we've all tried, right? We've tried, okay, we, we fail, we sin, we fall short of God, and we go, okay, here's what I'm gonna do better tomorrow. Here's my new vow, my new checklist, my new tip. And such religion goes by many names. Legalism, moralism, asceticism, circumcision. And so they're just different offshoots from the same basic root of unbelief. The grace of God in Jesus Christ alone, received by faith alone, is not really enough to save and to sanctify and to glorify human beings. And this is why Paul referred to those who taught such things as, verse 15, defiled and unbelieving. They didn't believe the gospel. They didn't trust that if we just draw near by faith in Christ and his work on our behalf, that that would be enough that the receiving of the Spirit in the inner person would be enough. And so they turn the law into a ladder to climb to God with Jesus sort of being a helpful leg up rather than a mirror that is meant to show us our sinfulness and our need for God, our need for a Savior, and so they used the law as a means to make them holy rather than a means to reveal God's holiness. To cry out to him to make us holy in Christ. I've heard it said before that the law is holy, but it can't make you holy. That the law is good, but it will never make us good. And so they tried to earn God's favor rather than trust God's favor. They made the promises of God conditioned upon our faithfulness rather than God's faithfulness. They made his promises conditioned upon our performance rather than Christ's perfect obedience. And so there's just this natural focus on the external behavior, on the external rules and laws and keeping them rather than transformation of the heart by the power of God. They refuse to believe that grace actually has the power to change us. You know when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch in Acts 15 Luke records some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved. So some came down from Jerusalem and This is what they're teaching. Paul and Barnabas is there, and the scripture says, "And there was no small dissension or debate," which is a way of saying it got heated. And you can imagine some were teaching, "And hey, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved." And Paul's there, and so there's going to be dissension and debate. So much so that they decide to send a delegation to Jerusalem from Antioch to get the input of the apostles and a council there that they would rule on this. And so Paul and Barnabas and others agree and they go with him, which to me is fascinating just to see the humility of Paul that he would submit himself to that process. Um, Because at any point in this debate, I'm thinking Paul could just stand up and go, you know, I only see one apostle in the room and I'm pretty sure it's me. And so here's the way it is. And if you disagree, we're just going to start calling down things on you. He doesn't do that. He's going to preach, he's going to t- teach, he's going to debate. And then when it's okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem and have this, he's going to trust God, submit to the process, and he's going to go. And it says, And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is often called the, the Jerusalem Council. This is Acts fifteen seven, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This was in Caesarea when he was sent there. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Love that part. And all the assembly fell silent. And Peter was not minimizing the importance of works. Rather, he was getting the order right. Good works come as a result of salvation, not the other way around. He's not minimizing good deeds. He's getting in everybody's hearts and minds the right order from where those deeds come. And we don't do good deeds as a means to be justified before God. We don't do good deeds as a means to be reconciled to God. We do good deeds because we are justified and reconciled and beloved by God. That order is critical. That the reason to serve, to do good is because he loves me, not so that he will love me. It's because I am his, not so that he would make me his. So the council is even going to go on to place requirements upon the Gentiles to abstain from sexual immorality, to abstain from food sacrifice to idols. But again, not as a means to be saved, but as an evidence of that salvation and a means to pre- prevent a stumbling block being thrown out in front of all the Jews that were around the world in the cause of the gospel. Yet Peter's clear, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, and all the assembly fell silent. This is what was needed in Crete. This is Paul was there when this happened, and he's thinking that's what we need in Crete. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Which I think deserves a question, why? Why is it so important to silence this? Well, firstly, they weren't submitted to God. Look at the word insubordinate. They did not teach the word of God rightly. Their talk was empty because it was filled with so many of their own ideas. And it was deceptive because it promised salvation and sanctification when all it brought was more bondage and slavery and death. That's the sneaky deceptiveness of legalism and moralism and self-righteousness is it provides this false promise of this will make you commendable before God. Listen to how Jesus confronted this teaching in Matthew 23. We read it this morning already. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's strong. when your greatest and best evangelistic efforts when they actually bear fruit it condemns people to hell they were proclaiming a message of salvation that actually enslaved and condemned people when believed that's deceptive that's the ultimate bait and switch and they did this by placing a heavy yoke of law keeping on the shoulders of their followers attaching to it this promise that if you just obeyed, if you just did well enough, if you just kept enough of these rules, you'll be saved. And they would live their lives under that yoke, under that oppressive weight, only to die, stand before God and find out that not only were their works futile, but they actually brought greater offense to God. That's why Isaiah is going to say we're we're like those who even our good works are like a filthy garment before you. And so it's a toxin to the Christian life, a toxin to the life of the church. There's nothing more anti-gospel than self-righteousness. And few things more miserable in a church. Few things more miserable in a home which is one of the reasons why they needed to be silenced is that they were, verse 11, upsetting whole families for shameful gain, teaching what they ought not to teach. And we already saw this in Antioch in Acts 15. It upset a whole church. And here we see Paul saying this upsets whole families. Paul, or Peter said at the Jerusalem council, a yoke neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear because he knew that if salvation is even partially in our hands we're in trouble we're condemned but you also just think about what this in our own homes if we were to establish just this system of elaborate rules that in keeping them this is how mom and dad are going to be happy with you and love you this is how God is going to love you and be happy with you If you put your shoes in the exact right place inside the door, if you eat your food in just the right way, if you clean your room and keep it picked up just like this, if you go through all these motions day after day, then maybe we'll accept it and we'll love you. And then you think about the constant evaluation that sets into the atmosphere, the constant judging, the constant fine-tooth combing of everybody's performance and behavior. And now everyone's relationships are sort of governed by this economy of works. And just the fresh air of grace is just sucked out of the atmosphere. And it's just a scorching east wind is all you feel every day. So the idea that we will stand before God on our own, maybe he'll accept us if we do good enough. That's bad news. That's not good news. And yet, our flesh gravitates toward it. Even though it's bad news, there's something in us that just, it's like in our car when our alignment is out. It just pulls to the right. You leave it alone, it just pulls to the right that ditch that's over there, it just something draws us there. No matter how much destruction comes, I think we get to measure it. We get to feel something emotionally and tangibly. There's actually a way to, to assess how we're doing every day that as suffocating as it is, it's kind of like going to the gym, and the worse we feel leaving, the better we feel the workout was, Right? If somebody has to, like, carry you to the car, everybody's giving you a high five. It's like, man, you crushed it today. You can't even walk. And we can approach the Christian life in a similar way. The worse I feel, the better I must be doing. The more my muscles are strained and hurting from all of my works and feeling all the weight of it, well, then we know, at least I know here where I stand. But then eventually over time, we buckle underneath it. We're crushed under the weight. And we either have to lower God's standard and bring Christ down, or we have to over assess our own abilities and raise ourselves up. But in order for that to work, we've gotta bring God down and us up. Which is why it's so tempting to focus therefore on the external rules. Because if what he's really after is perfection of the heart, that every thought, every emotion, every feeling, perfectly pleasing to God, if that's the standard, well, then we know we're in trouble, which is why it upsets whole households, whole families. And they were teaching this, Paul says, for shameful gain, Because as the flesh is so attracted to this system of self-righteousness, so there's also teachers that are attracted to it and willing to feed it. And how do they do this? Well, I think in a similar way to how the mob does like a shakedown. A mob will show up to a local business and say, hey, we're here to offer you protection. And the question is, well, protection from who? Well, from just bad things happening. Well, who's going to do the bad things if I don't pay this fee to you every month? Well, they'll do the bad things, but they don't tell you that up front. They just show up at the door. We're offering you protection or some merchandise that your life depends on buying it. Your life depends on purchasing our protection. And so in Crete, this was happening in a more subtle way. They were showing up and saying, hey, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved unless you keep this rule and this rule and this rule and sort of fit into this system, you're not going to make it, which begs the immediate question, well, well, how do we know what to do? Well, lucky for you, we're here. We're, We're glad to teach you. We're glad to be sort of your personal trainers in how to show up before God ready. And so they were there, and it was shameful gain because it actually harmed people. It actually enslaved souls. Because the problem here isn't, praise God, pastors being paid or elders being supported. The problem was what they were delivering was false. What they were delivering was deceptive. And so it was shameful gain. Another reason they had to be silenced is that they were turning people away from the truth, verse 14, to Jewish myths. And what was the myth? Well, that law and keeping the law, works of the law can justify you and sanctify you, that you can actually self-atone, that you can actually self-punish enough that God will be happy and pleased with you, that our works can actually reconcile us to God, that our hard work can actually purify us. Paul says that's a Jewish myth. Listen to Colossians 3. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's important. All these rules, all those regulations, they sort of have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. They feel right. We sort of feel better, feel more holy if we keep them, But then as Paul's going to say, but they're actually of no value in stopping the flesh. And we've all experienced this. I've experienced this. Where the more I stuff the passions, the more I try to curtail and control them, the more they burn. And the more bizarre they will come out in two weeks, in three weeks, the more sin will blow up in my life Because all those rules and regulations I set on myself have no value in stopping the flesh because they don't actually transform the soul. It's a Jewish myth, the appearance of wisdom. It's a fantasy. So the answer to drunkenness isn't ban alcohol. The answer to gluttony isn't impose rules on what people can and can't eat. The answer to sexual immorality isn't outlaw sex or outlaw marriage, which was happening in this day. The answer to worldliness wasn't just have many more rules about what you can watch, what you can't watch, what you can drive, what you can't drive, what kind of job you can take, what you shouldn't take. Such rules do not cleanse the conscience. They rather defile it. They don't purify the soul. Rather, they make everything seem impure, that now when my neighbor walks in from the barbecue or over at their house and they just have this big platter of pork chops, now because I look at that and go, well, pork is evil, now the, the whole moment is defiled, now nothing is pure, now everyone who eats in my eyes is unpure, and I'm there quietly judging them in my heart. That's why Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And what he's referring to there is there's plenty of impure things, but it's always because it's the abuse of the created things that makes it impure, not the created thing itself. That's where they were going wrong. They didn't believe, this is First Timothy 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That there was a way to receive created things as from God and a gift, that that is what made them pure. That that faith-believing heart receiving a gift of God as a gift of God. But if I don't believe that, if I believe actually God is only pleased with me if I use and arrange all the gifts in a certain way as a means to earn something. Well, now we've just defiled them. Now all things become impure because freedom to enjoy the gifts of God for the glory of God with thanksgiving is just taken away. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do eat. Paul's gonna to say to the Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor in, non, non, non-circumcision means anything, but faith working itself through love. And we see why so many people wanted to kill Paul, especially the Jews. You imagine how that landed on a first century Jewish audience, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything in Christ, but faith working itself through love. And so that is the message that was falsely being preached by the party of circumcision, and it needed to be silenced. Which brings us to another question. With what did it need to be silenced? How was this teaching to be silenced? Which brings us to our third and final point. The gospel and its transforming power. In response to the Cretan way of life, that they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith. And I think that's actually an amazing and counterintuitive response. I think we would expect Paul to say, Rebuke them sharply, but what do we think should come next? Well, rebuke them sharply to stop lying, to stop being lazy, to stop being so evil. But instead, he says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, sinfulness in our lives is firstly a faith problem. In the same way that bad fruit on our tree isn't a fruit problem, it's a tree problem. That seems strange at first glance. Rebuke them sharply, but they would be sound in the faith. He's saying you don't treat the symptoms by treating the symptoms. You treat the symptoms by treating the source. That the answer to lawlessness and the unbelief of lawlessness isn't the unbelief of lawfulness. We're just going from one form of problem to the next. But rather... It's the gospel and faith in Christ and what he has accomplished. The answer is genuine belief in the God of the gospel and his provision of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Why? Why is Paul gonna say that's the answer? Well, firstly, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Here's Romans one. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation all the way from justification through sanctification to glorification from top to bottom from left to right it is the power of God for our salvation and it is received by believing it and trusting it and throwing all of our lives upon him who spoke it which means we don't just believe it once we live by it from faith to faith from beginning to end because the gospel is, secondly, life-giving. The gospel is the speaking of God about Christ through human words so that when received and believed by the human heart, like real organic change happens. The law brings death. The spirit brings life. The law brings a curse. Jesus redeems us from that curse. The law holds us in custody like a prison cell until Christ comes and frees us. The law traps us helplessly in the dark. The gospel turns on the lights. There's a way that the law trapping us in the dark is helpful so that we will sit still until the light comes. This is 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think it's hard to fathom how amazing that statement is. That when God created the world, he did it by speaking words. Let there be light, and there was light. That's power. What Paul's saying is, by that same power, God spoke to our hearts, let there be light. Come alive, like Lazarus, come forth, Jesus is gonna say at the tomb. And when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, what must he do? Yeah, if he wants to stay in the tomb, I mean, he's just gonna have to take a nap or something because he's not gonna re-die. I mean, he says, come forth, and he comes forth. Paul's saying that in the same way God says, let light shine out of the darkness in creation, he says the same thing through the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so it's life-giving. It's light-bringing. That one reason the gospel is always relevant is because it actually illumines everything we see. It helps us see. It helps us understand the creation rightly. Interact with the creation rightly. Interact with God with reverence and awe through the things that he has made. Ephesians 3, Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power So I think the hardest part of the Christian life is comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what the Spirit of God and the gospel of Christ give us, to know what surpasses knowledge, and thereby, it says, be filled with all the fullness of God. That's transformation. That's how you turn Cretans into saints, is by filling them with all the fullness of God, by giving, turning the lights on so that they would see the glory of Christ, his work, his death, his resurrection, and have faith in him. And in having faith in him, the Spirit of God makes us new and transforms us because The gospel is life-transforming. Look at verse 16, Titus 1. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. There's actually a lot of irony in those words. Those who taught the self-righteous anti-gospel on Crete we're doing so because they believed that was the answer to the unrighteous works of the Cretans. They did so because they saw the, their works of the law as good and the way they were doing them and going about them, that this was good. Yet here, Paul is saying they actually deny God in their works. The very things that they do that they're presenting to the Cretans as saving are the very things now that in God's mind deny him Because everything they do is in unbelief. Everything they do is in a self-centered performance way. Everything they do, and ultimately it all fails. And here they're being said they're disobedient and unfit for any good work. That's irony. (laughs) The good works of the party of circumcision were not actually good works. They were plastic fruit, superglued to lifeless trees. And ultimately, they would live in all the same immorality that they judged and condemned in the Cretans. Like the Pharisees, they would rob widows' houses. They would strain out gnats and swallow a camel. They would keep these little particular traditions, yet steal and lie and condemn sound faith produces good works. That's Paul's point. Sound doctrine, 2.1, Titus 2, one, and Titus 2.10, when believed and taken seriously, actually changes our hearts and changes the way we relate to everybody. Titus 2, 2 through 9, it shapes the way we live. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Changing us. So, are you alienated from God? Well, then believe the gospel and be reconciled. Are you troubled by sin? Well, look to Jesus and confess and repent and be changed, be forgiven, be made new. Are you burdened by constant failings and weaknesses and burdens? Well, then, come to Jesus. He's going to say in Matthew 11, this is Jesus. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. What were they heavy laden with? Well, the law. The yoke of the law that had been put upon them. And Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest. Why? Well, he's going to take that yoke of law off them, and all that is owed to God by violating that law and he's gonna be put on a cross and he's gonna die for every single violation of that law by all his people. His blood is gonna be shed for it and he's gonna pay the penalty for it and then he's gonna say, now here's the yoke I'm gonna give to you and that yoke is just trust me, believe, follow, repent, turn to me and you'll be saved. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what Paul is saying through to Titus is this party of the circumcision, they're putting the heavy yoke. They need to be Silenced by good preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ because if people would but come to him, take his yoke upon them, they would actually be transformed and changed. And they would actually start producing real good works because the Spirit of God would actually be at work in them. Which brings us back to our main point, the powerful, life-giving, life-transforming answer to the countless forms of unrighteousness in our lives and the countless forms of self-righteousness in our lives is a sound, growing faith in the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give rest. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as a God who gives us rest in Christ, but it is a kind of rest that repents, a kind of rest that worships you in spirit and truth, a kind of rest that follows you, a kind of rest that delights to do good works, but not to be saved, but because we are saved. Not to be reconciled, but because we have been reconciled. Lord, we just pray that you would just keep blowing the winds of grace in Christ through this congregation. May we be a people who just keep breathing that fresh air and all the more love you because we are loved by you. All the more love one another because you have loved us first. And so we ask that that same voice that said, let light shine into darkness, would keep speaking to us, keep calling out in our own hearts and helping us to believe, to trust, to follow. In Christ and his work we stand, all other else is sinking sand. Every other form fails. Christ alone, and it's in Christ alone that we pray. Amen.